Thank you. Um, it's a new year. You know, just uh, a few weeks back, we started uh, the new year, and uh, you know, for some, this this marks a time of change, a time of setting goals, uh, marks a time of planning. I noticed that uh, the piano went from this side of the stage to over here, so change happens. Uh, I'm not sure what that was about, but it is a time when we, we set goals and we look forward to the year ahead of us, and we call these New Year's resolutions. So I thought we would take a, a few moments and reflect on our New Year's resolutions. You know, we start out the new year with this set of goals, and maybe we want to better manage our finances this year. That's a good goal. So we sign up for Financial Peace University, and we resolve to better manage our finances. Or maybe we want to improve our level of fitness, lose some weight. That happens to be a personal goal of mine. That's a very good goal. So we sign up for a gym membership or an exercise group, and we resolve to exercise regularly, walk daily, that kind of a thing. So the question is, how are we doing? We're already three weeks into the year. Are we keeping our resolutions? How's your resolve? Now, most people struggle with New Year's resolutions, you know, no matter how good the goals are for us. And it's a business fact that New Year's resolutions boost gym memberships. So if you're in that business, this is your busiest time of the year. Folks resolve to get into shape, to improve their fitness, to lose weight, and yet four out of five new memberships will be idle within a matter of a few months. In fact, unused memberships make the top ten list for money wasters. So if your, your resolution was to, to get your finances in order and to lose some weight, and you got a gym membership and you're not using it, you go to Financial Peace, you're going to have, it's a double badge, you've got two things to report. Well, research shows that how successful we are in accomplishing goals depends on the validity of the underlying beliefs and values that we hold that motivate setting the goal in the first place. For example, we set a goal of improving our financial position because it'll make us less vulnerable and reduce our stress. In short, we value security. That's the underlying value there. We want more peace and less stress and believe that our financial uh, our finances affect that very thing. That's why we call it Financial Peace University. Similarly, we set a goal to be physically fit and lose weight because it'll make us healthier so that we can live a better and longer life. So we value good health and long life. Not a bad thing to value. And we believe that exercise and diet will affect that. So ultimately, our beliefs and our values are the basis for our life's decisions and actions. They determine how we live our life and what we give our life to. So the question this morning is, what are your values and beliefs? Is there something that you value that is worth living your life for? Is there something worth giving your life for? Is there anything worth dying for? Well, I believe that God has an answer for those questions and that the answer is found in his love for us, his amazing love. Today we're going to take a closer look as we look at Luke 9 uh, about God's amazing love for his people, how he was willing to lay down his life for his people that he loves and how that love 
is a love to die for. We begin our study this morning. I mentioned Luke chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on uh, 866. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage for you a little bit. Anytime you approach uh, a passage in the Bible, you want to be able to answer some questions. The question is, what does it mean? What is it, how does it affect me? Well, in this case, we want to take a look at three basic questions as we read through Luke chapter 9. First question is, who is this man, Jesus? What is he trying to achieve? And how does this affect me? We're going to look at the question of Jesus' identity and his purpose and his mission. And then we're going to take that home. What? That's great. That happened 2,000 years ago. What does that mean to me today? The story begins in Luke chapter 9 with Jesus and the disciples in Galilee. Galilee is the northern part of Israel. And this likely takes place in the last year of Jesus' three-year ministry. So we understand Jesus' ministry was about three years. This is in that last third when this takes place. And we know that he's preparing for that final part of his ministry when he heads to Jerusalem. The story starts by raising the question of Jesus' identity. Who is this man named Jesus? Well, we read in Luke chapter 9, starts out, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And whenever, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the village, villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So what we see is, is that Jesus gathers those that he's appointed as his representative, and he sends them out. He's not sending them out in their own power. He's sending them out as representatives for him. In a sense, they're ambassadors. They're his messengers. They represent him. And they don't come in their own authority, but rather we read that Jesus gave his authority to them, his power and authority over all demons and over disease, so that they could heal people and make them whole. And that that wholeness, that act of of delivering people, would testify to the message that that was their primary thing that they were supposed to be delivering. They were sent out to declare the message. What was the message that Jesus was giving to the world? When we look at the Gospels and we see Jesus started his ministry, first John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was a forerunner of the one who is the true king of that kingdom. So when Jesus started his ministry, he gave the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The whole point of it was that God's kingdom is now And the king is present. And that there should be a response to that. So the the apostles were sent out to declare the message. And they were also sent out to make people whole. And they were also sent out, just as Jesus went out, with nothing but the provision of God. His father provided everything that he needed. In that sense, he traveled light. And he instructed them, travel light, trust God, don't trust the world. Well, how was this received? We read that now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. 
and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So who is this Herod the Tetrarch guy? Well, Tetrarch means ruler of a quarter. And Herod takes the name of Herod the Great, and he was a descendant of Herod the Great, and he was appointed as ruler over Galilee, this region that Jesus and his disciples were in. He was a ruler of Galilee and Perea, which is the Jordan Valley and, and a little bit east. And he was uh, an important guy called Herod Antipas. You read about him in other parts of the Bible. He was a leader in the world. And he had power. He had power over men's lives and death. So he had John the Baptist imprisoned. And then uh, in order to please um, Herodias, his brother's wife, um, he, as her daughter was dancing, and he said, you can have anything you want. She said, I want the head of John the Baptist. He had John the Baptist's head put on a platter and brought to her. That's how powerful this guy was. He says, now, nah, I don't believe that it's John the Baptist because I got his head. So I know it's not John the Baptist, but maybe he's a prophet, Elijah, or one of the prophets of old, like Jeremiah. But there was... Nothing in his mind that said, this is actually the son of God. He's just a man. That's what Herod thought. He's just a man. But what do the followers of Jesus believe? We read on a little bit further in verse 10. It says, and on their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them out and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is a north, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing village where Peter and James and John and Andrew were from, Philip. Um, It wasn't a very populated city in the sense it was a fishing city. It was a working city. Um, It wasn't on the the road of commerce, so it was a little bit out of the way. And Jesus is, these these men have been out in the field, and he says, hey, let's take a little mini retreat and go to Bethsaida. But we read on that... um, says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. He took them and withdrew to Bethsaida. And then the crowds learned it, and they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus is continuing the very thing that he sent his people out to do, to proclaim the kingdom of God as the rightful king and to heal and to deliver people. And this is where we read about one of uh, the great miracles in the Bible, the feeding of 5,000. It says, now... The day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away uh, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here at a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes. Unless we are to go and buy some food for all these people, they're not going to get fed. For there were about uh, 5,000 men And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. It's one of those great miracles, a miracle of multiplication, where God provided miraculously for over 5,000 people with five little barley loaves, the food of the poor, and a couple of fish. So what did the people think about him? Well, they might have thought, this guy really is a prophet. He might really be sent from God. 
What we see is that as Jesus' ministry progressed, people would crowd in. And, and he needed time and space because he was preparing for the final part of his ministry. So he went from that area in Bethsaida and he went north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon, which is uh, the biggest mountain in um, Israel. In fact, they have a ski resort there. It's about 9,200 feet. It's usually snow-capped. It's the source of all of their water. And it comes down underground and it comes shooting out of a rock at Caesarea Philippi. And this was kind of an out-of-the-way place. So he takes his 12 and he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And we read that, Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. You'd think that the disciples would have got this idea. Jesus' life is consumed in prayer. They should have been praying with him. But he was alone praying. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So they give the same answer that the crowd was given to Herod. But then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. That is the Messiah of God. They had this idea of what Messiah was, who he was. Their idea was that the Messiah is the word itself means anointed one and that he would be a God-designated king who would bring the world, the whole world, to the Lord and that he would restore Israel to its rightful place. At one time, they were almost at an empire stage back under Solomon's rule. And they were a great, great nation. And their idea of Messiah is he's our conquering king. He's the one that's going to restore Israel in the land. And that's Peter's confession. You're the Christ of God. So now that this question of identity was out of the way, I mean, it's true. He is the Christ of God. What did Jesus do? Well, he turns the focus, rather than just focusing on identity, to what he came for. He wanted to help the disciples move from just knowing who he was to understanding what he was about. He moved them to answer the question of purpose. What did he come to achieve? Well, what we're going to read next is that Jesus reveals God's plan for Messiah to lay down his life for the salvation of his people. This is the whole point. We read in uh, chapter 9, verse 21, says, And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is foretelling his his rejection by the leadership, his death, and his resurrection. This is what the plan of salvation is all about. You're thinking, this is God's plan A, and it involves dying. From a human perspective, that makes no sense at all. But from a divine perspective, the greatest enemy of man was death. When sin entered in and corrupted the human heart and the the wages of sin is death, our great enemy is death itself. The plan of salvation had to involve death. God's death, Christ's death for us. But he doesn't leave it there. He also tells about his resurrection. That there would be eternal life in Jesus. And we read next what the response, if that's the plan of salvation, what was the response to this plan? 
And it says, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The response to God's plan of salvation involves three actions. Three acts. It involves an act of the will. You have to deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you look at what happened in the fall of man, what happened is man rejected God as king and chose instead to put himself in the place of God, being judge and king over his own domain rather than accepting the, the dominion of God as king. To die to self means that you dethrone yourself and you accept the true king. We call this repentance. This is part of that conversion process. Repentance and faith, where you understand the truth about yourself and you understand the truth of who God is and you turn from yourself to God as your savior. It's an act of the will. You have to deny yourself. It's a conversion of the heart. But it's also an act of submission. He says, take up your cross daily. What does that mean to take up your cross daily? Well, a lot of times we use this expression, take up your cross, as suffering through something. Well, most of what we suffer through has nothing to do with God. It has to do with our sinfulness. The, the suffering that we experience in our life a lot of times is just due to us. That's not what this is talking about. Rather, what this is talking about is it's talking about a shift in our values and our priorities. We actually take up the interests and values of Christ. We submit to his kingship. We submit to his suffering, not our suffering, the suffering, the righteous suffering that Christ went through in order to save the world. And we submit to his will, and that touches us where we don't want to be touched. It touches our time, our talents, and our money. That's what he was asking for, to take up our cross daily. The third is an act of obedience. We're commanded to follow him. What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, it starts at baptism. It starts with a public identification in Christ's death and resurrection, that we are part of him. And it's followed by a confession, a confession that is our witness to the world. And it's not something that just occurs once and you're done. This is something that occurs recurringly. This is something that you do every day. You make a confession before your family. You make a confession before your work co-workers. You make a confession to your community about who Christ is in your life. This is the response to God's plan of salvation. But then Jesus goes on and he explains the necessity of the plan of salvation. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and of the Father, and of the holy angels. He gives what this whole plan of salvation is all about. Absolutely, there's a response, but that response is because of the necessity of the plan of salvation. There is no life in any other. This is the only way to enter into true life. Not only that, he foretells in this passage his coming again. He says he will come as the, the Christ, the Messiah that they expect, as the judge and the conquering king. But this will be at the end 
of God's salvation plan. When he comes and puts down his law and his rule for all eternity. And that the permissive will of God has no more place on the earth. Then he goes on to tell him, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Many people think this is pointing forward to what happens next, which is Christ transfigured. But rather, this is pointing backwards to the plan of salvation. Jesus' death and resurrection. And when he says some, and not all standing here, will actually be witnesses of this plan of God, he recognizes that Judas is not going to be one of those that is a witness. Eleven are going to be faithful witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus and to his ascension to heaven. But one would be missing. That would be Judas. So the apostles will witness the truth of God's plan. We then see a scene shift one more time. The scene shifts to Mount Hermon, which is about 25 miles north of Caesarea Philippi. So here they are. They're already a small group. Jesus is explaining the plan of salvation. Now he's going to actually start that plan in action. And he he does that by going to the mountaintop. He heads up on a 25-mile hike up the mountain, and he comes to a place where he stops to pray. And we read, Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. See, language fails us here. When you read about this in the the other two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, um, Mark uses this language, it's so white, it's whiter than the whitest bleached clothing that you could ever have. In other words, it's just dazzling, it's brilliant. Luke uses a word, it's like lightning flashing, the brilliance of a lightning flash. That's what happened to Jesus. He's there in prayer, and his face is actually changed. And it's, the change is so profound, it actually leaks out of him and makes his clothing brilliant. And the word that describes this in the underlying language is what we uh, use in the English as metamorphosis. It's a change from the inside out. You know, when you're in, in elementary school and you're learning what metamorphosis is, you learn about the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. The butterfly is as much that caterpillar as when it started munching on the leaf. It's an inside-out job. What has happened here is that Christ has reached his perfection. The man Jesus is the perfect man. He's sinless. We know that death has no hold on him at this point. Rather, he can step directly into heaven. I say death has no hold because he was a sinless man, and the wages of sin is death. If there's no sin, there's no death. Here is a man on whom death had no hold. And what do we read next? What's he doing? He could, he could step directly into heaven. But what we read about, it says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Interesting. Moses, Elijah. One, it tells us that there is life after death, because there's Moses and Elijah. We don't know how these uh, apostles recognize it was Moses and Elijah, but it's significant because Moses is the one that we get the first five books of the Bible from called the law. And Elijah represents the great prophets of old. And we know that the law and the prophets 
from the very beginning testify of the salvation plan of God. In fact, he even uses, Luke uses the word to describe what the salvation plan is. He says they're discussing his departure. That word in the, in the Greek, the underlying text, is the word exodus. That's how we get the name of our book Exodus, is from this word. And what he was observing was Jesus talking about how he was going to be that Passover sacrifice. That he was going to bring his people from a place of bondage and oppression through the death of the firstborn, through his blood, to actually be delivered into the promised land of God. And he's using this very language and he relates it back to all of the law and the prophets. And Jesus in this glorified state, death has no hold on him, is talking about what he's going to do next which is give up his life for the world. Nobody could take it from him, but he could give it up. Why would Jesus give up eternal life? Because he loves you. That's what this is all about. So what does Peter do? What do the apostles do? Now it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And the men were, preparing, uh, were parting from him. Peter said to, James, uh, said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He says this not knowing what he's saying. So Peter's like, he finally is like really awake. Like you guys are really awake this morning. This isn't a dream. This isn't a vision. He sees it full on. He sees the glory of God. And he sees what's going on. And he says, man, this is good. Let's keep heaven on earth longer. In fact, let me make some tents so that you guys can all hang out. We can just preserve this moment of heaven on earth. What, how does God respond to that? We read that as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. God affirms the identity, the deity of Jesus as Messiah, his son. He affirms the plan of salvation. This is his chosen one. There is no plan B. This is it. And then he makes a command. He says, listen. And that command has the force of listen and respond. Listen and obey. Pay attention to what's going on. Well, we read that the uh, disciples here, they, they still don't get it. Um, says, and they kept silent and told no one in those days uh, anything of what had, they had seen. And then we see Jesus leave the mountain. He's now actually started execution of the plan of salvation. He's going from the mountaintop to the valley. He actually is leaving that Mount Hermon to go back to Caesarea Philippi, all the way back down through the Jordan Valley, and he's going to make his trek up to Jerusalem. He had revealed God's plan of salvation to the apostles, to the twelve. Now he's going to reveal his plan of salvation for all of the disciples, all of those that would choose him. We read, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. 
And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. You know, I read that, certain things pop off the page. You know, Jesus is heading from the mountain to the valley, and this man comes up to him. And he says, this is my, my only begotten son, my only child. He's talking about his inheritance. This man has no life, no way of passing down his life, except for through this son. He's his only begotten. And he says, this son is not normal. He's demon-possessed. That's the result of the corruption of sin. It leads to illness. It leads to demon possession. It leads to death. And not only that, there was no human authority that could, could deal with this. The man was totally without help. The only one that could help him was a divine authority, Jesus. So what's Jesus' reaction? He says, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? You know, when I read that, being a parent and having had to deal with my child and children at various stages of their life, um, I could see in this maybe an a, a expression of exasperation or disappointment or frustration. But is that what's going on here? Is Jesus frustrated with these people? They're faithless and perverse? No. He just came down the mountain, chose to give up his life for them, and he's marching to Jerusalem This isn't a cry of exasperation and frustration. Jesus came down the mountain to save humanity. What he's doing is he's giving a a summary of the state of humanity. Humanity is unbelieving. They're faithless. And they're twisted or perverse. That means there's no truth in them. The name of Jesus, when he returns as a conquering king, you find this in Revelation 19.11, is faithful and true. What you see is the perfect man is faithful and true. The Son of God is faithful and true. And he comes to a faithless and untrue generation. He's making an accurate statement about what their problem is. Not only that, he follows it up with an encouragement. Not, oh man, how long am I going to have to be with you guys? But rather he's asking a rhetorical question. You know, a rhetorical question is one that's not begging an answer. It's one that the answer is already known. How long will I be with you? How long will I commune with you? Forever. All the way through the cross to the end, which is eternity. He will never leave us or forsake us. How long will he bear with us? How long will he endure us? Forever. All the way to the cross and beyond. In fact, we know that he bears the marks that he bore for us in his body this day. We know that because of the witness of the apostles. See, Jesus chose to come down the mountain and save humanity, and he delivers that demon-possessed boy. And again, we hear Jesus state the plan of salvation, but this time to a wider audience. says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this, saying, 
and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about anything. It's because of Jesus' love for his people that he chose to come down from that mountain to save us. But the disciples didn't get it. They wanted to believe that everything was okay, that they were good. And that is demonstrated next in the, in the passages that follow. It's like, well, I can't accept this truth, so I'll focus on this truth. I'll focus on my position in the world. I'll focus on making sure that I've got control and power and nobody's going to like come in and grab my game. Right? We suffer from this very thing that the disciples did. We're just like those disciples. So, what about us here today? Do we get it? The disciples didn't understand the plan of salvation. Their heart was still living in this world. Jesus states that it is receiving him by faith that one gains life. We read in verse my eyes don't work so good. I think it's 48. It says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The path to eternal life is through belief in Jesus, in his name. It's faith. So how does this affect me? I go back to verse 23. It says, He said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's an act of your will. It's an act of submission. It's an act of obedience. That's how we're to respond to this great love. So is there something worth living your life for? Is there something worth giving your life for? Is there anything worth dying for? The love of God that gave up his life for us is worth living for. He came down from the mountain to die in Jerusalem, to rescue us from death, the great enemy, and to bring us his resurrected life. He did that because he loves us. No other reason. God loves us. He loves you. This is a love worth giving your life for. This is a love worth dying for. What's our response this morning? Well, we should embrace the truth about ourselves and trust God entirely by changing our thinking, those values, those beliefs, our convictions, and our conduct. And we should follow wherever God may lead, even if it's difficult even if it calls us out of our comfort zone. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, incredibly um, powerful words that you've uh, preserved for us and captured for us through the pen of Luke as he captures your incredible great love, your amazing love for us, Lord, that you, with full knowledge of what was in front of you and no requirement that you would need to lay down your life. You chose to. Death had no hold on you, yet you gave up your life for us. Lord, I lift those to you this morning 
that are here, that are hearing this message, that this has challenged their life. You know, there are great resolutions we can make in life, but this is the greatest, that we can live for you, that we can die for you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, I just ask that your spirit would work within them today, bring them to a place where they're willing to own the truth, where I'm willing to own the truth about my life and come to you, Lord Jesus, and take your cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask you for your blessing in all of this. Amen. Amen. As we receive the offering this morning, we're going to respond in song about this amazing love that is ours in and through Jesus Christ. Amen.